Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early 20th century, anti-alcohol groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the American Temperance Society demanded that Congress do something about America's drinking problem. Alcohol consumption was on the rise, and temperance leagues thought the only solution was to make liquor consumption a criminal act. Prohibition officially went into effect on January 17, 1920. The 18th Amendment outlawed the production, distribution, and transportation of alcohol across the United States. But while the temperance movement celebrated the new legislation, the real victors were gangsters and criminals, because they knew that America still had a thirst for booze, illegal or not. All prohibition really did was open the floodgates for organized crime. Gangs became the suppliers for speakeasies and other illicit businesses all over the country. Gang leaders ruthlessly staked their claim on their own areas, like Al Capone in Chicago and Enoch Nucky Johnson in Atlantic City. The disputes over territory were bloody and violent. Several gangs fought over control of New York City, including Jack Legs Diamond. Jack was incredibly lucky, surviving several close brushes with death as he tried to claw his way to the top of the bootlegging business. Unfortunately for Jack, his luck would eventually run out, and he would become yet another casualty of gang warfare. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the murder of the infamous gangster Jack Legs Diamond. This week, we'll examine how Jack became one of New York's most prominent bootleggers. Next week, we'll cover how the stylish gangster was killed and how the press turned the dead criminal into an American folk hero. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Before Jack Diamond became one of America's most notorious gangsters, he had a modest childhood in a working-class neighborhood of Philadelphia. Jack was born on July 10, 1897, to his Irish immigrant parents, Sarah and John. John worked as a glass packer while Sarah minded their small home. Four years later, Sarah gave birth to another baby boy, Eddie. 
Jack was very protective of his younger brother, who would later become his best friend and business partner. From a young age, Jack was known to be mischievous. His mother had to keep a close eye on her son to make sure he wasn't skipping school or getting into trouble. His cousin later told reporters, Jack had a streak in him as a kid. He was light-fingered, couldn't resist stealing things. Ever the doting mother, Sarah was able to keep Jack on the straight and narrow for the most part. Unfortunately, Sarah began to suffer from debilitating arthritis, which made it hard for her to watch over her sons. Jack and Eddie soon fell in with a group of neighborhood boys known as the Boiler Gang. Many of the boys in the group were petty thieves, and they were undoubtedly bad influences on young Jack. The Boiler Gang was the first gang that Jack would join, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. Meanwhile, Jack's mother's health worsened. In 1913, Sarah contracted tuberculosis. She passed away a few weeks later on Christmas Eve. The 16-year-old Jack now had no mother to look after him. His father, John, began to drink more and more, and soon was all but absent from his two sons' lives. A few weeks after Sarah's death, John realized he was not up to the task of taking care of his delinquent sons alone. He packed up the family's things, and the three diamonds moved to a relative's apartment in Brooklyn, New York. But Jack's behavior only worsened in the big city. Jack was restless, and his grief over his mother made him act out. His dad tried to get him a job in Brooklyn, but Jack refused to work. Jack, where have you been? Round, what's it to you? Well, I heard you never showed for your first day on the job. <laughs> never wanted it in the first place. Son, I went through a lot of trouble. I just don't want to see you getting in the same kind of mess you were in back home. If your mom was around, she... She isn't around. And if she was, she'd tell you to stop drinking yourself to death. Now, you mind your business and I'll mind mine, all right? Just a few weeks after moving to Brooklyn... Jack joined a criminal gang known as the Hudson Dusters. On February 4, 1914, he was caught robbing a small jewelry store with two other young men. Jack pled guilty and was sent to the New York City Reformatory for misdemeanors, where he spent a year behind bars with other first-time offenders. Jack promised himself he'd never be locked up again. But within a few months of his release... Jack had committed six more robberies. He was becoming a familiar face in Manhattan's police precincts and heading down a bad road. Eventually, Jack decided to make a change. On June 28, 1916, he joined the New York National Guard. Unfortunately, Jack could not stand the strict rules of military life. Headstrong and unruly, he constantly questioned authority. Within six months of reporting for duty, Jack went AWOL three separate times. While he was busy running away from service, he somehow managed to find the time to have a whirlwind romance. Jack, now 20 years old, was handsome and charismatic with dark brown hair and twinkling blue eyes. When Catherine Williams met him at a New York dance club, she fell head over heels. On November 20th, 1917, Jack married Catherine in a small ceremony in Manhattan. But the young bride didn't realize that Jack was skipping out on his military service. Only a few days after the wedding, 
she realized Jack was not the brave soldier she thought he was. What do you mean you're not on leave? I come and go as I please. No one tells me what to do. If you hate the military so much, why do you wear that uniform? It helped me get the girl, didn't it? So, what happens when the army catches up with you? What then? Eh, they won't catch me. Just a couple weeks after Jack and Catherine's marriage, Jack was finally caught. He was brought to Camp Merritt in New Jersey and detained. But Jack couldn't stand confinement. A few weeks later, he stole a 45 caliber pistol and made a run for it. Soon enough, Jack was arrested in New York and transferred to the military. On July 10, 1918, he was sent to France to help fight in World War I. But just days after setting foot in Europe, Jack went AWOL again. When he was caught, he was jailed and sent back to the United States to be put on trial in a military tribunal. On March 17, 1919, Jack Diamond was found guilty of desertion. He was given a dishonorable discharge and sentenced to five years of hard labor at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. While Jack served his time in the military prison, his wife Catherine was looking for a way out of their disappointing marriage. In 1920, she went before a judge asking for an annulment. And what is the reason for the annulment, Mrs. Diamond? My husband is a drug addict. I had no idea when I married him. I see. Anything else? Well, you can look at his record, sir. He was arrested and jailed for burglary. He's a criminal. Mrs. Diamond, why in the world did you marry this man? Because he told me he loved me. A few months later, the Diamond's marriage was no more. But while Jack wouldn't be coming home to Catherine, he would be coming home sooner than expected. In 1921, the president pardoned Jack, along with several other imprisoned World War I soldiers, to celebrate the end of the war. Jack, now 24 years old, returned to New York City, a free man. He was overjoyed with his sudden independence and relished his second chance. But instead of starting a new life, he doubled down on his life of crime. Jack Diamond was still an unknown entity to most New York City gangsters. Over time, however, he and his younger brother, Eddie, started making a name for themselves as leaders of a gang of robbers. The gang specialized in robbing warehouses and storerooms. Their main merchandise was furs. Fur coats and accessories were extraordinarily popular luxury items at the time, and Jack thought he could corner the market on stolen animal skins. Jack himself loved looking stylish and was obsessed with wealth. Jack's gang hijacked over a half dozen trucks carrying furs and broke into several warehouses, stealing everything not bolted down. But theft was not enough for Jack. He had his sights set higher. Prohibition, which started in 1920, had given criminals more power than ever. And Jack wanted in on the gangster's profitable new venture, bootlegging. Coming up, we'll explore Jack's growing power in New York's criminal underworld and his many brushes with death. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos, 
With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1922, 25-year-old Jack Diamond was a semi-successful thief and gang leader in New York City. He and his brother Eddie made a good team, but Jack knew that if they were going to make it to the big time, they would need to partner with a criminal with far more connections. At some point that year, Jack met Arnold Rothstein, one of the biggest and most powerful importers of illegal alcohol in New York City. Jack had a devious proposal for Arnold. Jack, I'm not interested in stolen furs. I got bigger fish to fry. I know. I want to get into a new line of business. Something that could benefit you. I'm listening. Right now, you import your booze. And you pay out the ear for it. Sure, but I still make a tidy profit. Well, I think I could at least double that money. Oh yeah? How's that? What's cheaper than buying booze? Stealing booze. If you help me get some trucks and warehouse space, me and my crew can hijack other guys' liquor shipments. It's a two-for-one deal. You get cheaper liquor, and you get to screw over your competitors. I do like the sound of that. (laughs) Soon, Arnold and Jack were in business together. The partnership between the two men would prove almost instantly profitable and extraordinarily dangerous. On October 24th, 1924, Jack Diamond was driving his Dodge sedan near Harlem when a black limo with tinted windows pulled up beside him. As soon as the limo's window rolled down, a shotgun began to fire. Hit by several bullets, Jack crouched down in his car and raced away from the limo. He somehow managed to drive a few blocks to Mount Sinai Hospital, where he promptly passed out from the pain and the blood loss. Shotgun pellets had pierced his foot and scraped his head. After the bullets were removed, police questioned Jack in his hospital room. Do you have enemies of any sort? Any reason someone may have it out for you? I ain't done nothing wrong. I don't know anything about that. You're saying these men shot at you for no good reason? Maybe they got the wrong guy. Uh Uh-huh. Does the name Big Bill Dwyer ring any bells? Never heard of him. Jack was lying. He most certainly knew who Big Bill Dwyer was. After all, Big Bill was one of the biggest importers of booze in New York. And his liquor shipments were the main targets of Jack's hijackings. 
Although he was normally fearless, Jack was spooked by the shooting. So, after recuperating from the gun wounds, he decided to keep his head down for a while. He stopped hijacking liquor and focused on his other business, speakeasies. In the 1920s, there were hundreds of underground bars that sold alcohol illegally. Many of these operations were run by gangsters. Jack's biggest speakeasy at the time was the Bronx Theatrical Club. The bar was luxuriously outfitted with fine wood furnishing and thousands of dollars worth of wall tapestries. The speakeasy was very profitable for Jack, despite being shut down multiple times by police. Jack loved the excitement of nightlife. He frequented many clubs and was by all accounts an excellent dancer. It was on the dance floor that Jack first met Alice Schiffer. During the day, Alice was a secretary, but at night, she was Jack's dance partner. Alice was tough and foul-mouthed, just like Jack, and the two quickly fell in love. In 1926, 29-year-old Jack married 26-year-old Alice. But Jack was much too power-hungry to allow romance to slow down his business ventures. Jack heard through the grapevine that Arnold Rothstein, the kingpin of New York, was moving away from alcohol and into illicit drugs. Jack wanted in, so he smooth-talked his way into becoming Arnold's drug purchaser. In the summer of 1926, Jack made two separate trips to France to procure drugs like morphine. Jack was making money hand over fist with criminal enterprises now spanning from robbery to bootlegging to drugs. But even all that wasn't enough for Jack. In addition to drug running, speakeasies, and running his gang, he sometimes served as a hired gun for other prominent gangsters. On the evening of October 16, 1927, Jack was working as Jacob, Little Augie, Oregon's bodyguard. Little Augie was one of the Lower East Side's most powerful gangsters, and a rival wanted him dead. Strolling down the street, Jack and Little Augie kept their eyes peeled for anything suspicious. Hey, Augie, see those guys back there? Where? Behind us. Don't be obvious when you look. You think they're following us, Jack? Come on, let's turn here. Get out your gun! Hey, stop right there. I'm warning you. You little Augie? Who's asking? We got a message for you. Suddenly, one of the men pulled out a pistol and shot a bullet straight through little Augie's skull, killing him. Before Jack even had a chance to reach for his weapon, two more gunshots echoed through the city streets. The bullets struck Jack right below his heart. As he collapsed onto the concrete, his attackers ran away. A crowd of hundreds soon surrounded Jack's bleeding body. The mob of people was so thick, ambulances struggled to get through to help Jack. Critically wounded, Jack was brought to Bellevue Hospital, where surgeons operated on him immediately. Amazingly, Jack recovered despite the fact that one of his lungs had been punctured. For the second time, Jack cheated death. The shooting and Jack's brush with death became front-page news. One paper gave him a new nickname, Legs, 
which stuck with him for the rest of his life. All notorious gangsters needed a good nickname, but why Jack was assigned the name Legs remains a bit of a mystery. One theory is that Jack was named after his flashy dancing. A second hypothesis is that Jack was fast on his feet and able to run away from the scene of the crime quickly. But Jack's newfound fame was more of a nuisance than a gift. All of a sudden, he was closely monitored by New York City police. To take the heat off, he decided to move out of the big city. In 1928, Jack and Eddie Diamond started exploring the Catskill region of upstate New York as a new hideout and base for their operations. Eddie had recently been diagnosed with tuberculosis and the mountain air was good for his lungs. Jack, meanwhile, bought a large home in nearby Acre, New York. Jack found that country life was a nice change of pace. Plus, his generous tips and handouts made him a beloved member of the small town. But while Jack spent more and more time upstate, he still had plenty of business in New York City. He split his time between Acre and Manhattan, hoping to throw off the police and keep a low profile. Unfortunately, Jack was seemingly incapable of not getting in trouble. In 1929, Jack's most popular speakeasy was the Hot Seat Totsy Club in Midtown Manhattan. It was a members-only club whose clientele included celebrities, politicians, and other gangsters. In the early hours of July 13th, three drunken men managed to barge their way into the exclusive bar. Simon Walker and brothers Red and Peter Cassidy were small-time hooligans who were looking for trouble. They found it almost immediately upon stepping foot into Hotsy Totsy. Peter began to insult a young boxer who was drinking at the bar after losing a boxing match. <laughs> Licking your wounds? Get out of my face. Was that match fixed? Sure looks like you didn't try. <laughs> Are you looking for a fight or something? <laughs> Maybe I am. I'll knock you and all your friends on their faces. Us too? I'd like to see you try. Look here, I'm Jack Diamond and I run this place. If you don't calm down, I'll blow your head off. Hey, you can't push me around. Jack made good on his threat. He fired point blank at Simon, Red, and Peter. Simon and Red were struck in the head and chest by multiple bullets. They died on the scene. Peter was shot three times, but managed to get out of the club and into the stairwell where he collapsed. He was later brought to a hospital where he eventually recovered. Jack now had a problem on his hands. Over 50 of the bar's patrons and employees had seen him murder two men. But Jack had a way of making sure people kept quiet. On July 19, 1929, New York City's police chief announced that Jack Diamond and his Hotsy Totsy business partner, Charles Entrada, were indicted for murder but the cops soon discovered they couldn't find anyone to testify. Several of Jack's own employees at the speakeasy started to vanish and were presumed dead. In total, three waiters and one hat check girl disappeared. One server was found dead, dumped off the New Jersey turnpike, his body riddled with nine bullet holes. 
Unsurprisingly, Jack's intimidation worked, and the police were unable to pin the murder on Jack due to lack of evidence. Even Peter Cassidy, the only surviving member of the crew Jack had shot, refused to talk. Nevertheless, Jack Diamond was still a wanted man. He kept under the radar for several weeks, changing his location constantly in an effort to thwart police. But Jack's efforts to hide were made much harder by a tragic development in the Diamond family. On January 14, 1930, Eddie Diamond died from complications from tuberculosis. Jack was devastated, but he couldn't even mourn his brother. The police knew that Jack and Eddie were close, so they decided to stake out Eddie's funeral. This would be a perfect chance to apprehend Jack. But he was much more cunning than the NYPD. The police closely monitored the mortuary, but Eddie's body never showed. Instead, Eddie was brought to a different funeral parlor across town. Jack snuck in a visit with his brother's body before once again disappearing. The police were none the wiser. In February of 1930, Jack's business partner at the Hotsi Totsi was acquitted of the murder charges. Jack could now finally come out of hiding after more than half a year. On March 10th, Jack turned himself in at a Manhattan police station. He was arrested and spent a little over a week in jail before the murder charges were dismissed. The police knew they wouldn't be able to get the charges to stick, and they didn't need the embarrassment of another failed trial. Jack was free again, and once more he turned his attention to his illicit crime network. The gangster had two goals that summer, to begin importing drugs from Europe again and to corner the alcohol market in upstate New York. Little did Jack know, these business ventures would end up skyrocketing him to the highest levels of fame and eventually doom him and his gang. Up next, we'll examine the events leading up to Jack Diamond's untimely death. And now, back to our story. In the summer of 1930, 32-year-old Jack Legs Diamond began his efforts to monopolize the illegal alcohol market in upstate New York. Jack was ruthless in his ambition. Jack and his men traveled to every single bar and hole in the wall selling liquor in the area and demanded they sell Jack's booze and only Jack's booze. His gang beat up any local beer purveyors who dared question his authority. Soon, nearly every inn and saloon was serving Jack's beer, but there's still one holdout. Henry Western, the owner of the Chateau Inn in Lake Katrine, would not cave. On August 22nd, Henry received a phone call at his bar late at night. He immediately told his wife he had to leave for an urgent business matter and drove off in his Buick sedan. Henry Western was never seen again. A few days later, two New York City police detectives saw Harry Skunky Klein in Brooklyn. They knew Harry was a low-level goon in Diamond's gang, so they began to follow him. When Harry went into a local apartment, the officers barged in after him. In the apartment, underneath a bed, was a massive arsenal of weapons the largest stash of arms and ammunition ever found in New York City. 
The stockpile included three pipe bombs, three tear gas bombs, 18 grenades, 22 pistols, and 29 boxes of ammo. After Harry was questioned, detectives learned that he was in Brooklyn to ditch a car. The car was none other than Harry Western's Buick. The police found the vehicle in a local garage, and the back seat was covered in blood. The police now wanted to talk to Jack Diamond, but he was on his way to Europe to broker a drug deal. Authorities weren't sure which cruise liner Jack was traveling on, so they wired several ocean liners in search of the gangster. They finally located him on the SS Belgenland, which was on its way to England. The international search for Jack, along with the stunning arsenal of weapons, made Legs Diamond the top newspaper story for days. Papers in America and Europe covered Jack's exploits in detail, and he became an almost instant celebrity. Much to Jack's chagrin, his fame had immediate consequences. When the SS Belgenland finally docked in England, a huge crowd waited at the dock hoping to catch a glimpse of the gangster. Also waiting on the dock was a contingent from Scotland Yard. The English police did not allow Jack to disembark. Jack waved them off, telling them his destination was not England anyways. It was Antwerp, the ship's second stop. When it was clear that Jack wouldn't be allowed to leave the ship, reporters fluttered on board to ask Jack questions. Jack! Jack! Why are you in Europe? I'm going to Vichy to get the cure. I got stomach trouble and I was told to come here and take the waters. Legs, how do you feel about not being allowed in England? I don't much like being treated like a criminal. They don't got anything on me. So the reports of that arsenal found in Brooklyn being yours are wrong? I ain't got no house in Brooklyn. I don't know anything about that. You reporters are causing me all sorts of trouble. Papers tell the police I did some sort of crime, then the police arrest me. Then there's all sorts of headlines. But the papers never say when the police let me go a couple days later because they got nothing on me. The ship set sail the next day, but to Jack's dismay, his newfound fame continued to get in the way of his drug deal. Jack was not allowed to stay in Belgium, and once he reached his final stop in Germany, he was jailed. When German officials contacted American officials, they learned that Jack was not wanted for arrest. New York police did not have enough evidence to apprehend him. Nevertheless, a few days later, Jack was deported. German officers could not find any passenger ships with available rooms, so they ended up sending Jack back to the United States on a freighter. The ship crossed the Atlantic carrying 5,000 canaries and one gangster. Needless to say, when Jack arrived in the United States, he was extremely frustrated. And he took out most of that frustration on the press. The first newspaper man I see, I will punch in the nose. They got me into all this trouble, although I ain't done nothing. You hear me? I'll punch the first one in the nose. Now that Jack was back home, his first order of business was to try to find a way to get back to Europe to complete his drug deal. He had borrowed $25,000 from two powerful gangsters, Salvatore Spitali and Irving Bitts, to fund the sale. If Jack didn't deliver the goods, he knew he would have to pay the price. But Salvatore and Irving didn't think it was possible for Jack to travel anywhere unnoticed now that he was a celebrity. They wanted their money back, 
and they would do just about anything to get it. On October 12, 1930, Jack was staying at the Monticello Hotel with his mistress, Marion Kiki Roberts. In the morning, as Jack lay sleeping, two men barged into his room with guns drawn. What's going on? Get the girl out of here! Kiki, go to your room! Okay, okay! Our boss wants the money, Jack. What money? Don't play dumb with us. We need the 25K, and we need it now. I don't carry that kind of money on me. That's not our problem. Just give me some time and I'll get some- You don't got time, Jack. Bullets struck Jack's thigh and shoulder, and one bullet scraped Jack's head as he fell backwards. As Jack bled on the hotel bed, the two men ran off. Jack stumbled out of the room and collapsed in the elevator where he was allegedly heard yelling out, Nobody can kill Lex Diamond! Nobody! An ambulance arrived a few minutes later and brought Jack to the polyclinic hospital where doctors attended to him immediately. This was the third time Jack had been shot and once again, he survived. It would not be a fast recovery for Jack, however. He wouldn't check out of the hospital until New Year's Eve, over two months after the shooting. While Jack put on a tough face, he was still weak from the wounds. But Jack had more to worry about than getting better. His business was struggling. He had failed to get into the drug trade because of his disastrous Europe trip. Plus, his notoriety in New York City made bootlegging all but impossible. With his options narrowing, Jack focused solely on his one moneymaker, selling alcohol in the Catskills. There was an unknown distributor of hard cider that was cutting into his beer and liquor racket. Now, his sole mission in life was to find that distributor and take him down. On April 18, 1931, Jack and two of his henchmen forcibly stopped a truck driving cider just outside of the small town of Catskill. In the truck were two local men, James Duncan and Grover Parks. James and Grover were forced into Jack's car at gunpoint and brought to his garage in Acre. Jack questioned the men aggressively, but they would not reveal the details on the hard cider shipment. Jack had his men torture Grover Parks for the answers, putting matches against his feet. When Grover still wouldn't talk, he was dragged to a tree where he was hung momentarily before passing out. Neither Grover or James ever cracked. Jack normally would never allow a witness to live, but for some strange reason, he allowed Grover Parks and James Duncan to escape. The next day, Grover Parks reported the kidnapping and assault to the sheriff, A warrant was immediately issued for Jack Diamond's arrest. On April 21st, the police found Jack in his home in Acre. While Jack grumbled he did not resist arrest, at the arraignment, Jack pleaded not guilty, and bail was set at $25,000, a small fortune at the time. Somehow, Jack finagled the money, and he was released on bail three days later. But as it turns out... Jack's arrest was the least of his worries. On April 27, 1931, Jack Diamond paced around the Aratoga Inn in Cairo, New York. 
He was expecting a phone call from his lawyer. He didn't take any important calls at his home in Acre anymore because he feared the phone lines had been tapped. He waited a couple hours, but no one ever called. Just as he walked through the front door to leave, the sound of a 12-gauge automatic shotgun echoed through the air. Most of the shotgun pellets missed Jack, but four slugs struck him in his side. Jack yelled out at his shooters as they peeled away. Bum shooting! Better luck next time! But for all of Jack's bravado, he was still seriously injured. The doctor's prognosis was grim as they got to work, stopping Jack's bleeding. But despite their fears, Jack managed to recover. Unsurprisingly, Jack claimed he had no idea who would have shot at him. It must have been a local farmer who pulled the trigger. The newspaper stories were responsible. They got my assailant all steamed up. Jack was lying. It was almost certainly a fellow gangster who put out a hit on him. This time, it took Jack over a month to become stable enough to leave the hospital. He wouldn't be returning home, however. Instead, he was transferred to the Catskill Jail on May 31st to await trial. While he convalesced, the state attorney general gathered a massive amount of evidence in the case of Grover Park's kidnapping and assault. Even worse for Jack, the feds had raided Jack's home and safety deposit boxes, finding hard evidence of Jack's bootlegging business. In May, the FBI charged Jack with two indictments for violating prohibition laws. Jack, in his weakened state, would have to defend himself in two separate trials. The first, a state trial centered on Grover Park's testimony. The second, a federal trial centered on bootlegging. The Grover Parks trial started on July 13, 1931, in Troy, New York. Hundreds of people crowded the courtroom and courthouse steps in an effort to see the notorious gangster. The prosecutors brought forward 11 witnesses, several of whom confirmed they saw Jack near the scene of the kidnapping. Unlike the shooting at the nightclub, Jack wasn't able to intimidate all of the witnesses into not talking. The most damning testimony came from Grover Parks himself and his wife. The only reason I'm alive today is that I was able to grab hold of a tree branch when they were trying to hang me. You don't know these men. They're capable of anything. They are going to kill me for saying all this. You have to put them away. (laughs) You should have seen my poor husband. I hardly recognized him that night. His face was swollen and his hands were badly bleeding. Jack's lawyer knew the testimony was true, but tried to sway the jury by claiming Grover Parks was nothing more than a liar and a fame mongerer. I'll give him this. Mr. Parks came up with a fantastic story. But that's all it is. A story. All Mr. Parks wanted was to be a hero and get his picture in the New York newspapers. Don't fall for his lies. In cross-examination, the defense tried to poke holes in Grover's story, but Grover did not fall for their tricks. Jack and his lawyers failed at their game of intimidation, but they had another plan up their sleeves. Bribery. The defense brought forward seven witnesses that claimed Jack was in Albany at the time of the kidnapping. These supposed witnesses were almost certainly paid off by Jack and his gang. After four days of testimony, the jury was sent to deliberate. 
Jack was nervous, although he would never admit it. He had been caught red-handed, and all he could do was hope his lawyer's tricks had worked. After two hours, the jury finally came back with its verdict. Not guilty. The evidence was stacked against Jack Diamond, but apparently the jurors didn't agree. The speculation at the time was that members of the jury were paid off or were simply intimidated by Jack and his crew. It is also possible that the jurists were enamored of the famous gangster. Many Americans hated prohibition laws, so bootleggers were treated like folk heroes. Whatever the case may be, Jack didn't have time to celebrate. His federal bootlegging trial started just a couple of weeks later on August 4, 1931, in New York City. The feds called 32 witnesses to the stand who all testified that Jack Diamond was heavily involved in the trade of illegal liquor throughout upstate New York. Mr. Smith, you are an innkeeper in Haynes Falls, is that correct? Yes, sir. And how are you acquainted with Jack Diamond? I hate to admit it in court, but my inn sells booze from time to time. Well, Diamond is the real big shot in distributing beer in upstate New York. Anyone who doesn't buy his beer or crosses him gets taught a very nasty lesson. Can you elaborate on that, Mr. Falls? You can't say no to the man. Just look at what happened to Henry Western. The defense's case fell apart, as witness after witness testified about Jack's extensive bootlegging network. On the fifth day of the trial, the jury came back with its verdict. Guilty. This time, Jack's lawyer's tricks didn't work. The judge sentenced Jack to four years at a federal penitentiary. Jack's lawyers immediately appealed and convinced the judge to allow Jack to be released on bail, pending the appeal decision. Not only was Jack facing prison, he was facing yet another trial. After he was found not guilty in Grover Park's kidnapping, the attorney general wanted another swing. Jack was charged with the kidnapping of Grover's partner, James Duncan. The case began on December 11, 1931. James was only 17 years old, and he shook with fright on the stand. When asked who had kidnapped him, he pointed to Jack Diamond with a quivering finger. According to the newspapers at the time, Jack's lawyer ripped into James on cross-examination, saying, Why, you little liar! How dare you try to implicate my client in your far-fetched schemes! You never saw this man before in your life, and you know it! On December 17th, the jury deliberated, and once again, they declared that Jack Diamond was not guilty. As it turns out, Jack could cheat his way out of a jail sentence, but he would not be able to cheat his way out of a death sentence. Just a few hours later, after a long night of celebrating, Jack Diamond collapsed into bed, exhausted. But he would not have a restful night of sleep. Moments after dozing off, he would be startled awake by two men in the dark and a shotgun pointed right at his head. And this time, he would not survive the shooting. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. 
We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Jack Legs Diamond, where we'll dive into Jack's sudden death and explore who may have been responsible for the crime. For more information on Jack Legs Diamond, amongst the many sources we used, we found Anatomy of a Gangster, Jack Legs Diamond, by Gary Levine, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, and Laura Faye Smith. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crying Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crying Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.